Hi everyone, Pamela Log here, your host of the Energy Transitions podcast. If you enjoy listening to our bi-weekly podcast, make sure to hit the subscribe button and take a moment to leave a rating or review wherever you're listening. This will help us spread the message and connect with our community. Thanks again for listening to the Energy Transitions podcast from Inlet and Friends. The Voluntary Carbon Market, or VCM, is an increasingly lucrative space, and yet many would argue it's lacking standardization, regulation and credibility. It's a nascent market, driven by individual organizations looking to curb emissions. But how successful is the VCM at driving decarbonization, and is there a way to simplify this complex market? To answer these questions and share some much-needed insight into the VCM, I'm joined by Luke Leslie, CEO at Carbon Project Financier, Carbon Neutral Royalty. I'm Pamela Larg, and this is the Energy Transitions Podcast. Luke, thank you so much for joining us today. I've heard some refer to voluntary carbon markets as the Wild West. Tell me, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, it's a, it's an interesting uh, way to characterize the market. And I think what it speaks to is that this is a growing industry which is still in its, in its infancy. And what we're seeing is uh, very early adoption and growing appeal in a, in a market that is still difficult to navigate. An example of that is that you have a number of different registries and they're really self-appointed and they issue carbon credits based on their own rules and methodologies. And I see these registries as being akin to central banks and central banks have different levels of status around the world. So you have the Fed, for example, and then uh, you'll have some other banks such as th- those in emerging markets which are issuing currency, which has investors have less confidence uh, in. And so what you're seeing today is a consolidation of issuers and a consolidation of methodologies. And I think uh, it's moving from being a place which some describe as the Wild West to a much more formalized and sophisticated market. I think before we delve into the intricacies of VCMs, this market is clearly growing. You mentioned it's a nascent market, it's in the early stages perhaps, but it's gaining ground and we are seeing more interest from companies and of course governments as well. Am I correct? You are. So so we believe that we are uh, getting close to a tipping point. Of you know, the, We're seeing the beginnings of mass adoption, uh, but the market is still tiny. You know, last year, the market was, was about $2 billion dollars. And to put that in perspective, there's an, an interesting recent report by a, a gentleman called Robert Hogland, who is a, a thought leader in, in, in this space. Uh, the, the world spends 10 times more on chewing gum today than they do on carbon credits. So it's, it needs to scale 100 times plus for this to really make a material impact on climate change. Are voluntary carbon markets actually making an impact? Are we seeing that 
we are progressing in terms of our decarbonisation efforts because of these markets? The way you need to think about the VCN, which we'll, we'll call the voluntary carbon markets for short, the, the way you need to think of it is that it's one part of a two-part act to solve climate change. The first part is really the biggest contributor, and that is the reduction of carbon emissions. So you, first of all, will take a company as an example. What they have to do is they have to reduce their emissions as far as they can, and then the residual emissions, which they can't abate because the technology is not there, or perhaps there's another reason, that uh, remaining component needs to be neutralized by a negative emissions project. And that is implicit in when, when we talk about net zero, it is net of a negative emissions project. So it's a critical piece of the puzzle. And we absolutely believe that it is a critical tool in the fight against climate change. Luke, what kind of offsets are there? How do companies create these carbon credits? So the way that the carbon credit market works is that you have registries. There are a few dominant registries which issue the bulk of of carbon credits today. Uh, One is called Vera and another is called Gold Standard. And they're, they're two that we tend to work very closely with. They have methodologies that have to be followed. I think what a lot of people who are not involved in the VCM don't appreciate is that they are already very detailed, very rigorous, and they've evolved hugely since the carbon markets started many decades ago. Uh, But they're still not perfect. And this is something that I'm sure we'll come on to later on. It's what's happening to further tighten them. Now, they will come up with uh, different ways. There are lots of different ways to generate a carbon credit, but how you want to think of it is Ultimately, there's two overarching types of credit. One is you are actually removing CO2 equivalent from the atmosphere, and that could be through planting a tree. That's one I think everyone can understand. Another would be through conserving a tree that would otherwise be cut down, perhaps for cattle ranching. So you have an avoidance credit and you have a removal credit, and you have 170 plus ways to generate a carbon credit. So it's a very complicated uh, market and you've got a multitude of methodologies and registries who have their their rules around the issuance of carbon credit but what every carbon credit should represent is one ton of greenhouse gas as you rightly mentioned it's a complicated market and it's not perhaps as regulated as some might want it to be. So let's talk about the challenges of navigating this landscape uh, if you can take us through that. Well, look, firstly, it's not a commodity because a carbon credit is, when you compare it to another credit across different categories or across different jurisdictions, it has a different value to the buyer. So prices are determined bilaterally. You can think of it like a work of art. Uh, it's really that the value is what the buyer and the seller believe it to be. And buyers are not just buying a credit for that ton that it represents many credits have co-benefits it'll be a project could be more beneficial to biodiversity or to local communities and the vcm is really it embodies the law of comparative advantage if you were to plant a monoculture in scotland the cost would be high the carbon sequestration would be low and 
the, the benefit to biodiversity in a mon monoculture is going to be much lower and to local communities possibly much lower than if you were to do the same project in somewhere like Madagascar. This is really how the VCM helps to allocate capital efficiently in order to make sure that the best projects are securing uh, money today. Is there a way that we can increase the regulation or standardization? Like you said, a lot of progress has been made. There has been evolution, you know, in terms of the gold standard and Vera, they have really come a long way. What more needs to be done to make this viable? I mentioned before, you have two types of credit. You have an avoidance credit and you have a removals credit. The avoidance credits are very hard to calculate because you're running counterfactual analysis. You're predicting the future. And this is what's led to a lot of criticisms of the market. It's really in the avoidance space where there are claims of overcrediting. And, and some of that criticism is accurate. And it really comes down to the complexity of some of these calculations. And the registries are addressing it. So they're coming out with new methodologies all the time to deal with some of these, these issues. We're expecting a new methodology soon in the Cookstow space. It's linked to areas of subjectivity where the developer can put in their own numbers, their own estimates. And it's try really trying to deal with that and make sure they that these numbers are capped or they're controlled in a different way. So what we want to see is an acceleration of that so that once buyers are confident that things like overcrediting are a much lower risk, those categories, really important categories, can then be scaled really quickly. Today, you have a tiny market, and to put it in perspective, one oil and gas company in Europe, they have already pledged to purchase 40% of today's entire volumes. So that's the equivalent every year from 2030. You know, so how is everyone supposed to meet their climate pledges when there aren't enough credits to go around? Luke, if I can mention the rainforest credit scandal uh, from earlier this year, I would like to get your input on that. And if you can just explain to me, what was the scandal about? And what are some of the lessons that were learned from that? And how is the VCM going to move forward from some of these instances? So I wouldn't categorize it as a scandal. I would describe it as, as a debate. And these debates are raging all the time. They're very healthy. And essentially, it's because everyone's version of the future is different. So if you're trying to predict what would happen to this rainforest if I didn't protect it? I mean, that's a really difficult question to answer. What are your reference points? If you're looking at local deforestation rates, can you extrapolate that? And, and how do you do it? And so when someone interrogates the numbers today and says, you know, with high conviction that they should be very different, I don't see how those numbers are any more accurate, frankly, than, than the initial proposition. But what can happen, what can improve is the a general agreement around how to make those estimates. Um, it is likely that overcrediting has been taking place in some projects. And so the important thing is that the, uh, the registries are working with scientists and, and advisors outside of the registries in order to come up with a, with a solution which everyone feels comfortable with. Now, every time you, you run a, an analysis, I don't want to call it a post-mortem, but if you, if you look at a project after the fact, you'll always be wrong. You know, there's always going to be a variance between what happened and, and, and what your uh, prediction was at the beginning. So 
I think people are going to have to accept that we're not always going to be completely accurate, but everyone has to get comfortable with the way that it works today. If I can pivot slightly to carbon neutral royalty, and if you can tell us a little bit more about what you do and how the organization functions. So I'm the CEO and co-founder of Carbon Neutral Royalty, and it's a, it's a company that we founded two years ago. And what we do is very specific. So we really stick to our knitting. We're a group of individuals that come from the traditional financial world, and we're applying our skill sets within the BCN. What bonded the team, one of our core values is around biodiversity and how, how we can improve uh, the protection of biodiversity and how we can enhance it. Um, so in short, what we do is we find and we finance projects that we believe need to be financed to have the maximum impact uh, for fighting climate change. And we do that through, first of all, filtering all the different carbon solution categories, a handful of which we think are investable today. And when we look at investment, we're talking about the very large pools of capital provided by the likes of pension funds. We focus on those categories. And the second thing we do is we then forensically map those categories to understand who has some, uh, perhaps it's an advantage through technology, perhaps it's they're operating in certain jurisdictions or they've got a certain method of planting, perhaps incorporating drone technology and uh, machine learning, for example, to bring down costs. So we, we look to see who really is pioneering and proving that they have a model which can be particularly efficient. And then the third thing we do is we finance those partners, those lead developers, and we fund them to grow rapidly. I'll give you an example of this. We partnered with the leader in the clean cook stove market. It's a, it's a developer called Burn, absolutely incredible group of individuals that have uh, built and they've invested millions and millions of dollars into R&D to do this. They manufacture and distribute the world's most efficient portable clean cook stove. And it really is head and shoulders above everyone else operating within that category. And we have funded them so that their production has grown four times in the last 12 months and we'll continue to rapidly scale them up to 20 million clean cook stoves a year so that's an example of how we operate we've done something similar with mangrove planting we planted just under four million trees last year and our funding comes from as i mentioned the likes of pension funds so if we can show that this works and that everyone um, benefits from it, it, it there's a lot more money to come and we can really turn the taps on and make a difference in the VCM. In terms of turning on the taps, what do you see as the future of VCM? And of course, for carbon neutral royalty as well. I think what we'll see is the 170 different carbon categories that, that are presented today. There'll be a, uh, some sorts of consolidation. You're going to see the established and fast growing segments, there's going to be a handful of them. It'll be the likes of reforestation. You, you will see conservation in there. You will see clean cook stoves. And there's going to be a handful which are going to grow very, very quickly. And I think there'll be others which will slowly be deprioritized. And within those categories, I'm going to pick reforestation as an example, because it's one that I think people can, can really understand. You're going to see 
a rapid improvement in how we plant. For example, native species. People just haven't been planting native species at scale. It's probably been 10 or 20 years that we've seen people start to do this, and it's still really very small scale. And there's certainly not been any tech introduced. The developers today, there's lots of lots of older foresters. And so I think you're going to see the, the introduction of some pretty exciting technology. And it's going to allow us to do all sorts of things. And I'll give you, let's give you some examples here. One is you can use drone technology to identify germination rates. Through machine learning, you can identify where leaves are being discolored. You can then go and and focus on certain areas of your plantation. And then you can also you can also monitor biodiversity. You can use you know, ground acoustics, for example. Uh, you can use eDNA. You can really understand what the benefit is for local wildlife within the areas, within the projects that you're operating in. And you can do this, you'll do this at an increasingly lower cost. And that's really exciting for us. I'm really pleased you mentioned some of the more digital or technological aspects because I was quite interested uh, to learn how, for example, AI might actually influence the space. Well, we've seen this in uh, in soil carbon as well, so regenerative agriculture, and it's it's possibly one of the categories that where this is absolutely critical to the scaling of these markets. So, so how it works is you you have developers that use satellites and then they run machine learning on on the imagery what they're trying to do is identify things like no tillage and uh, various other you know, change in farm practices through satellites they then do some ground truthing to, to improve the accuracy of these of this technology and and then they can scale projects across borders really quickly because they can um, shrink the costs dramatically uh, you don't forget that traditionally, when you go and test for carbon in soil, it's a really expensive process. You've got to go out and every uh, whatever, 100 metres, 500 metres, you've got to actually do a, a ground test. It's really expensive. So if you can find a way to, to, to leverage data at scale, you can shrink the costs and you can, you can roll out very large soil carbon programs as an example and you can do the same in, in reforestation as well it's still it's early days and you know we're seeing a lot of testing going on but the technology is not massively complicated so we have pretty high hopes while you were talking about that it became clear to me that this is obviously very exciting for you what ignites your passion for the work that you do well what's really exciting for me is my background is in traditional finance you know I um, I'm able to apply those skill sets which are have a lot of value in other sectors um, into the into the VCM where it's really needed you know it's a very informal market still that needs a lot of shaking out even once you've identified the best categories and the best developers those developers they, they need a hand because they're not many of them are not ready to receive institutional money you know, there needs to be reviews on governance, on uh, legal agreements, and so on. So it's kind of on the on how to operate side. So we bring all of that into the VCM as well. We think we're we're really an important part of of making sure that that the VCM is scalable and investable. Luke, thank you so much for sharing your insights into what is such a complicated and, and tricky landscape to navigate. Uh, do you have any final thoughts or comments that you'd like to highlight before we conclude? 
One thing I would say to your listeners is that this is a, a really exciting time. We're living in a very exciting time. We could be witnessing a millenarian movement at the moment. And, and what, what I mean by that is that we're seeing some of the brightest people, some of the, the top graduates of the world's top universities, and they are they are wanting to work in climate. They're wanting to solve this problem. And they're also from a generation where they've grown up in, in the world of tech, and, and that is now being brought in across the VCM. And if this is something that appeals to you, particularly your, your younger listeners, you know, I'd absolutely encourage you to, to consider it as a career path because you're surrounded by some brilliant people doing brilliant things. And it's, uh, it's intellectually very interesting as well. The science is moving very fast and you're able to almost have your philanthropic years a bit early because the, the worst case is that you're just um, doing great things for the planet. You're re-landscaping huge areas and it's very hard to, to, to think of any reason why you wouldn't want to do something like that. Thank you for sharing your insights and for explaining where the VCM is in terms of this tipping point. And, and I'm sure it's a space to keep an eye on in the future. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Pamela. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to our listeners. Until next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this Energy Transitions podcast brought to you by Enlit and Friends. Visit enlit.world for more episodes. See you next time.